We're glad y'all are here. We're going to be uh, looking at the life of David this morning. So uh, let's pray. I- I'd like to open with a reading of one of David's psalms to kind of get us there. And, uh, and we'll use that as part of our prayer. So let's pray together. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Lord, our prayer this morning as we come before you is first that we would come before you humbly and that you'd be glorified by that. Lord, as we look at the life of David today, your goodness just shines through over and over and over again. Lord, as we uh, begin this morning, we want to lift up another church locally, uh, Emmanuel Missionary Baptist, and pray for Bobby Sparks, even as they've studied the life of David uh, this week. Um, I pray that it would be blessing them and that you would be with them and that you would be um, guiding them um, as they walk in faith. I pray uh, for Bobby and for, um, for his marriage. I pray that you would see um, fruit there and that others would see fruit there as they're just enjoying you and walking together. Lord, we pray for the McGraws as they're um, continuing in sabbatical, and I pray that um, as they sit this morning, um, I pray that there would be rest and and growth and encouragement there, and that the whole family would benefit um, from that and enjoy you in that. I pray for Brad as he is leading a base camp. I pray for all those young men and women who are being (coughs) equipped and readied uh, to go to the ends of the earth for your glory. I pray for the Thorntons this morning. pray that they would continue to persevere uh, faithfully in all that's before them. And I'm thankful that, as we read this morning already, that you are God who knows every detail before it comes out. I pray for the Hucks. could come to that point this morning where we just see our God is unfathomably good. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the opportunity to open the word and to not have to whisper and to be able to have understanding because your spirit indwells us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is part three of a four-part series probably a four-part series, you can't ever be sure, Um, titled Faith During Faithlessness. In a dark season of Israel's history, there was a transition from the era of the judges to the era of the kings. And the reason it was a dark season is because Israel was turning on God. They they weren't heeding God's word. They weren't obeying the Lord. And in fact, their, their request for a king was shown in their motive that they just want to be like the other nations. So they weren't growing in their faith, they were moving backwards, and it was a dark season. And so this is titled Faith During Faithlessness because we see God raise up leaders, some of whom show faith during that time, and the effect of it is very significant. During that season, particular men served in particular leadership roles, and the first that we considered was Samuel, as we're in First and Second Samuel. Samuel's life was marked by listening and obeying and urging others to do the same. And it it wasn't just a broken record. He did it with compassion. He listened and he obeyed and he encouraged others to do the same. Then we considered Saul. If Samuel was a picture of someone who showed faith during faithlessness, Saul was one who didn't exhibit the faith that was needed. And while he was an impressive leader and the first king of the era, being impressive was not enough because 
as we studied last week, Saul became impressed with himself. It's never a good thing for us to become impressed with ourselves. He feared the people above God and allowed them to control him. This was ultimately unloving. And while Saul began his ministry thinking too little of himself, and he moved to a point of thinking too highly of himself, the shift that we never observed in Saul's life was just to think of himself less. And because he feared people above God, God rejected Saul as the king of Israel. And that that was what was significant about last week. It's not just let's have a sermon on don't be a people pleaser. It's realized that people pleasing and fearing God um, less than you're fearing people is the very thing that dethroned the first king of Israel. So it's significant. But what happened is that fear caused God to reject Saul as the king of Israel. When God removed the blessing and the anointing from Saul, he placed it on David. He removed it from Saul and he placed it on David. Aside from Christ, no other king of Israel is given such a thorough account in the scriptures as David. Because of that, it'll probably be about a three-hour sermon. I'm kidding. Some of y'all are like really nervous. You're like, oh man, that's something to do. There's a thorough account given to David. If Saul was the impressive man, David was the impressed man, and he is marked by and dominated by his regard for the Lord. Like, Again, I love just giving the spoiler alert at the beginning of the sermon. It's all about God. David is all about the Lord. He is infatuated with the Lord. He's overwhelmed by the Lord. And that's what we're going to see as we observe the scriptures today and, and, and dive in. He's dominated by his regard for the Lord. What we have before us in the text this morning is, is really quite unique. We have three things at play that I want us to be mindful of before we dive in. The first thing is we have the Old Testament narrative that outlines the life of David. It's a story that we can read out loud and we can see what's happening in the life of David. But then we also have the Psalms, of which David wrote a bunch of them. So we don't just have the narrative story, but the Psalms written by David, we we can obtain their understanding to the intricate details of his heart and his mind while the narrative was going on. For example, there's a point in the narrative where David is hiding in a cave, and then there's a Psalm written when David was hiding in the cave. And we can see where his heart was and where his mind was. And on top of that, we have Psalms that were written about David, where we can see the perspective that other people had as they observed David's life and his relationship with the Lord. So we have a really unique um, thing for us in the text this morning. That said, you cannot preach one sermon about God's goodness in David's life and cover every detail. So don't worry, I'm not going to try to cover every detail, though there are many to cover. So what I want to encourage you to do, let's wade into the waters of the Word and see what the Lord has in store for us today. Turn to 1 Samuel 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. This is the anointing of David as the king. Chapter 15 was where Samuel... uh, admonished and confronted Saul. And that was not just a confrontation between two people, that was God rejecting Saul through Samuel. And then the very next chapter, we see something with David. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. So right there, we know Saul is, is, is exercising his leadership in a way that's very severe. If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, 2 Samuel 16 Verse 5, and he said, um, the other city came to meet him and, and trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, Because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? You can imagine Samuel getting a little bit nervous at this point, right? Is everybody here? Is everyone accounted for? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So the one anointed here is the most unlikely candidate. That's where we're starting. The one anointed is the most unlikely candidate. And in the following verses, David immediately gains favor uh, with Saul, who's technically still the king, though the Lord has removed his spirit from Saul. Saul is grieved by this spirit that is tormenting him, and he says, I need someone to play music for me, and someone says, well, hey, I know this guy, David. He does that. David goes in, and he, and he gains favor with Saul immediately. So he's anointed. Saul's rejected in one chapter. David is anointed, and right immediately after that, he gains favor with Saul. And the very next encounter we see is the one that is probably most familiar to all of us, David and Goliath. Our kids are in here with us today, and we can know for sure that our kids have studied the life or the, the story of, of David and Goliath. Most of us probably know the story, but to just be brief, once again, the Israelites and the Philistines are up against each other, and Goliath comes out, and he says, he's, he's mocking them, he's mocking their God, saying, send out one person. If you can whoop me, we'll all bow down to you. Now look at verses 23 through 50 in chapter 17. It is important for us as we go through this morning, know there's a lot of text. Climb into this narrative. Climb into it. What would it be like to be alive and witnessing these things as they're taking place? 1723. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Now David was bringing, it's interesting, he was bringing some, some supplies to his brothers, and then like 10 cheeses to the commander. It's just a weird fact that he was bringing cheese to the commander. I don't see cheese mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures except right there, but he was bringing cheese. And um, just a side note, I figured that would be helpful for y'all. Um, and David heard Goliath. While he was there doing that, his cheese delivery, he heard Goliath um, mocking as he had been mocking. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Little ruddy, handsome David with his pretty eyes is stepping into a serious, serious confrontation. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. The people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. I think it's interesting the transition there. I used to keep sheep 
like a couple hours ago. But now I'm going to whoop Goliath. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's hardcore right there. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, this is very important. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. We know how it continues. He goes out against him. He throws, puts a sling in, gets him right in the head, drops him. Goliath is dead. That's usually where the coloring sheets for the kids stop. Um, the story goes on, um, and, and um, it's pretty gruesome. I mean, he, he dominates Goliath. He absolutely dominates him. What causes David to become enraged in, in this, this story? Well, it's not just that no one else will stand up. What causes David to become enraged is dishonor that's being shown to God. I mean, you, hear, you can just hear the disdain in his voice. Who is this guy who's defying the armies of the living? God, my God, is living, and he is making a mockery. Who is this guy? That's the thing that, that riles David up. The thing that, that causes David to become enraged is dishonor that's being shown to God. And where is David's confidence? Remember what he said. David didn't say, man, y'all are sissies. I could take this guy. He wasn't arrogant about it. He stepped up and he said, the Lord will deliver me. He looked back on the, the, the success that he had had. He looked back on fighting bears. He looked back on fighting lions. And he said, you know what? I didn't just show good skill and, and prevail over those animals. The Lord delivered me from those animals. Skill had to be exercised. But the Lord delivered me. And when I look at this situation, my hope is in the fact that the Lord who delivered me from them will deliver me from this guy with a big mouth. And that's the approach he takes. It wasn't until high school that I realized that the David who fought Goliath was the same David who later became the king of Israel. Is that weird? Did anybody else have that experience? I had so many coloring sheets that I did of David beating Goliath, and it was like it just stopped there. And I was like, man, there was this cool kid named David who beat Goliath, and then incidentally, there was a king later that was named David too. And for many years growing up, I didn't see the connection because the story stopped at him beating Goliath. But I want you to know the story is beginning. It's a huge story of redemption and the forward movement of God's kingdom, I think that this happened because we have a tendency to take a snapshot and really sensationalize it. It's like, ooh, did you see that? There's a metaphor, and there's imagery, and there's word pictures, and we can take that, and let's just run with it, and we can make our, our coloring sheets and our slides, and I can have a really good sermon outline just from that thing, and we'll stop there. And we have a, a tendency to take this snapshot, and we sensationalize it. But the irony is that the big picture, if we can zoom out a little bit, the big picture, though it takes a little more work to see, is always more beautiful than the snapshot. God was mighty in David's life when he overcame Goliath, and God was mighty in David's life in many, many other ways. It doesn't stop there. Too often we take the story of David and we turn it into the story about courage and strength and personal confidence in our own abilities. But this is the wrong message. One commentator notes, what is good and right about David is that he has faith and confidence in the God that he serves. I'm convinced that if David didn't have faith and confidence in the God that he served, he would have fallen when he went up against Goliath. He knows that God is the point, and he knows that God will supply. He goes on to say, some people desire to impress you with themselves, while others leave, leave you impressed with their God. Have you ever had that conversation with someone where it's really obvious that they're trying to impress you with themselves and you don't want to call them out on it because it's awkward, but it's obvious like, yeah, you kind of keep going back to you and you keep showing me things about you and you keep telling me what you did. When we have conversations and encounters with others, we can make, take the approach where we want them to be impressed with us because our focus is on us or we can be so in awe of our Lord that they just leave impressed with our God in awe of our God because of the way that we're carrying ourselves in light of who our God is and in light of what our God is doing. 
What are some ways that we get wrapped up in trying to impress each other? There's so many ways. Just be thinking right now, what are some ways we get wrapped up in trying to impress each other? Dave Ramsey in his book, I'm not sure if Dave Ramsey quoted Fight Club or Fight Club quoted Dave Ramsey. I'm kind of confused because I've seen it quoted by both people, but this is what it, what it says. And that's not an encouragement to go watch that. He says, we try to impress people that we don't like with, by buying things we don't need with money that we don't have. That, that should be convicting for some of us. We try to impress people we don't like, or maybe that we don't even know, with, by buying things that we don't need with money that we don't have. We can get so wrapped up in impressing others with ourselves that we just kind of fall into this slippery slope of our resources and our time and our thoughts go toward a waste. But what would it look like for a people with the goal of leaving others impressed by our God? Take it a step further. What if you don't necessarily enter the conversation saying, okay, I want them to be impressed by my God, so I need to do some evangelism stuff now, I need to use some church language, I need to throw out some these and thous in reference to my Lord-ith, and I need to, I need to really impress them with, with where I'm at in my walk. Rather than that, what if, what if the approach was this, that what would it look like if we were just so impressed and satisfied with our God, like David is, that others could not help but be affected by our affection of our Lord. I want you to know that affection and witness go together. You're not likely to have this strong witness to the goodness of God if that doesn't affect you, if your emotions aren't lifted, if your heart and your mind are not toward the Lord, it's not very likely that your witness is gonna be real strong. Because if, you're, if your thought of being a witness and, and doing evangelism and sharing Christ with people is, okay, now I have to flip the switch and go do that, it's, it's off a little bit. There's, a, there's an imbalance there because what should be is people so filled with God's goodness and so satisfied with him that the byproduct is people are leaving impressed with our God, not us. They leave a conversation with us with their minds more Godward than usward. As you read David's words and the story of David's life, the things that stick out are God's activities, God's purposes, God's name, and God's glory. David was all about God. And this type of life is not supposed to be an anomaly. Whenever I hear someone say about a Christian, man, that guy, he, just everything is about Jesus. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not supposed to be an anomaly. That's not supposed to be the strange occurrence that someone is so satisfied with Jesus that it seems it affects every part of their life. That's what's supposed to be the norm for the followers of God. People of faith are to be marked by this, that we live in the reality that all of creation is about God, not you and me. I mean, there's a lot, one of the things I've struggled with in preparation of this sermon is I'm like, I wanna go to this specific application and things, but that's just a big reality, that everything's about God, not me. And the application should be significantly abundant in your life. You should be able to say, okay, if everything's about God and not me, I, I'm, I'm going to take a different approach on how I make my decisions and how I pray and how I consider this event and how I consider my hardship and how I consider my high points, how I consider my low points. I'm doing premarital counseling with a couple right now, and it's a joy walking with them. And the very first thing that we had to establish was marriage is about God. He created it. He has a purpose in it. And if we can start there, it will bless you guys. You guys will be blessed in your marriage if we understand, first and foremost, this is about God. I've heard pastors say, the wedding day is all about the bride. Eyes on the bride. Do what the bride wants. And I'm be I'm, I'm careful here because there's some brides up in here or brides-to-be <laughs> that might get upset. But I've actually heard pastors say the wedding day is all about the bride, and then they'll be as brash and ridiculous as to say, and the wedding night's about the groom. Let me assure you, they're both about God. Both of those things are about God. It's all about God. He is central to all things, not just some. And this is what was characterized in the life of David. David's faith provides a picture of what's supposed to characterize the nation of Israel. As the one leading the nation, people should be able to look at David and say, okay, so that's what this nation is like because that's what their leader is like. So consider for a moment, does your faith characterize how God's people are supposed to be seen? 
Can a stranger or a friend or a family member look at your life and have an accurate picture of the character of the church? I mean, personalize it. Can your mom and dad look at your life or your brother and sister look at your life and be able to know what people at Crosspoint are like? It's that personal. Work to, to be image bearers in all things and to show the character of God. And when people look at our lives, that's supposed to be indicative of how we all are, not this anomaly of that one guy who's so God-centered or that one woman who's so God-centered. We're supposed to all be God-centered in all things. That may seem elementary, but I promise you it is easy to lose sight of. And it would, it would benefit us greatly to heed that and consider it in all circumstances. It's shortly after the encounter with Goliath that Saul becomes jealous with David. People start singing songs about David that are better than the songs about Saul, and he becomes jealous. And for the rest of 1 Samuel, the tension just grows. It grows and it grows, and there's chasing, and there's I'm going to kill you, and I could have killed you, and man, it just gets really ugly through the end of the chapter. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Last week, we observed how it ended for Saul. It ended the way it began and continued, where his focus was on himself. And last week, we observed that he fell on his own sword and he killed himself after being wounded by the archers. Now, I want you to look with me at verses 1 through 10 of of 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, now David's dominating things at this point. David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he, he saw me and he called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. So which is it? How did he die? To be clear, This Amalekite is lying to try to gain favor with David, and he's not the only one that does such a thing. Now, before we continue reading, I want you to consider that what what would your response be upon finding out that the man who has tried to kill you numerous times, the man who has made your life hard and miserable in many ways is now dead? What would your response be? Now, let's continue reading in verse 17. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. He said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, and look at verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you. My brother Jonathan, very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me is extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. So David shows that his first interest in the death of Saul, is not himself. He knows that he's been anointed, but he makes no assumptions about Saul. 
He honors Saul in his death, even though Saul made life so difficult for David. This is character at play, the character of our Lord at play. This is good leadership. He is showing that he is going to honor the one who has fallen in a way that is customary and right and good. He makes no assumptions about Saul. He previously restrained himself from killing Saul on multiple occasions, and now he mourns because another did not show the same restraint. Well, what happens next in chapter two is indicative of the way that David moves. Look at two, verse one. We're moving through this Old Testament narrative. So we have David who was anointed. There was strife between he and Saul for many years. <coughs> there was hiding. There was um, back and forth. Now he hears that Saul is dead and Jonathan is dead. And in chapter two, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. Man, this closeness with the Lord exemplifies the life of David throughout. He doesn't just assume, Saul's dead, I'm anointed of God. It's go time. I'm about to be the king. He goes to God and he says, should I go up into any of these cities, Lord? Lord says, yes. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, Lord, which one should I go to? Because I don't want to go just where I want to go or what I think is best. Lord, I want you to tell me where to go. And the Lord answers him, Hebron. This is sweet counsel that he has with the Lord because he values the purposes and the direction of the Lord and his plan. After this, David is anointed king over Judah. So this is where it gets a little crazy, and I need y'all to stick with me because it gets crazy, and y'all got to pay attention. David is anointed king of Judah. That's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of Saul's other sons, Ishbosheth, is anointed king over the other 11 tribes. So now, Israel has two kings. It's a weird dynamic. David is over here over Judah, and Ishbosheth is over the other 11 tribes. And that's Saul's son, okay? Now, there's some other key players that I need y'all to understand who they are and what they're doing. So follow me on this. Work hard. Pay close attention. This is the most difficult part of the sermon. This is the part where the pastor looks at it and says, should I just take this out? But I didn't. So I'm encouraging y'all, stick with me here. It's not horribly difficult, but it is a little bit complicated because the kingdom is divided. And when the kingdom is divided, um, there's some complications in leadership and what's going on here. So the first person I want to introduce you to is Abner. Abner. Ishbosheth is over these 11 tribes over here, and his commander is Abner. Next is Joab. David is over Judah, and Joab is the commander there. So David's right hand man is Joab, and Ishbosheth's right hand man is Abner. Are we clear on who's on what side here as they're moving forward? David and Joab. Ishbosheth and Abner. Now, at the beginning of chapter three, it seems that Abner has flipped. So, see how confusing it gets immediately? Abner's over here with Ishbosheth, but in the next chapter, Abner flips. Here's what happens there's so much drama. Ishbosheth goes to Abner, who has only been good to Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth says to Abner, Hey, you, you hooked up with one of my father's concubines. How dare you? Who are you? And just accuses him out of nowhere of something horrible. And Abner says, Oh, really, Ishbosheth? Well, you're not even a very good leader. Let's go over to David. And he flips. And Abner, the commander who's, who's over these 11 tribes and serving with Ishbosheth, goes over to David and says, you need to be the king of all of Israel. This is a big, significant thing. Here's the problem. Joab hates Abner. I mean, do y'all see the drama here? So Abner goes to David while Joab's gone and plundering someone and says, let's make a deal. Let's work through this. And Abner and David make a covenant together where Abner is going to bring all the rest of Israel under David's command and leadership. David says, let's make a covenant together, it's good. He treats him well, and he sends Abner off. Joab hates Abner. 
for good reason. Abner killed his brother. Do y'all see this? Are you tracking with me? They have this weird encounter where Judah and the rest of Israel kind of run into each other in the wilderness, and, and Abner and Joab, um, they're not so keen on each other. They let their men fight each other. It's like, hey, what do y'all want to do? Let's let our men beat each other up and see who wins. It's like this weird game show. And so they, they whoop up on each other, but what happens is they all end up interlocked and killing each other. And so it's like, well, that didn't go well, and then Abner is going to go his way, but Joab and his two brothers are like, nah, let's go follow Abner. And so one of Joab's brothers, who is stealthy like a gazelle, follows Abner and stays close with him. Well, Abner is older, but he's a man of war. And he says, back off. And Joab's brother's like, uh-uh. He says, back off. Joab's brother's like, uh-uh. And he pulls one of these. Whoops. And he takes his spear, stops real fast. And Joab's brother, it says it goes through the back of him. Kills him on the spot. There's so much drama here. So that's how Joab's brother died, because Abner pulls one of these and just shut, runs him through. So Joab hears that David and Abner met, and he's like, uh-uh, we ain't doing business with Abner. I know how Abner is. So are we all familiar with this crazy narrative? Abner flips. Abner's going to lead the rest of Israel to David. David's, uh, Joab, David's commander, says, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. Now look what happens in 326. In 326, all these details that I just shared are all at play, and they're all important because of what happens next. In 326, when Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him inside, took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asael, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord in the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all of his father's house. May the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asael to death in the battle of Gibeon. Their motive was revenge. And David says, that was not okay, Joab. You're my right-hand man. You're important. You're so important, I'm not even going to fire you or kill you, but I'm going to curse your house because what you did is wrong before the Lord. This is tense. He curses Joab because of what he did. Saul wants to make it clear to the people that he is not severe. I'm sorry. All these names, hold on, let me make a little, little change here. David wants to make it clear to the people that he's not severe, like Saul was. David wants to make it clear that he's not severe. David wants to make it clear that he did not order Joab to go and kill Abner. Rather, he's just, and he's fair, and he's gentle, and he's not severe. If you're paying attention to good marks of leadership, those are some of them. Not severe. Then in chapter four, it happens again. It happens again. When he raises, he comes to this point of having more favor and, and um, showing a little more power, all of a sudden people just start bringing heads to David. Can you imagine what that would be like if you didn't want people to die unfairly and severely? Look at chapter four. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all of Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. And if you skip forward into chapter, to verse 5, it says, Now the sons of Ramon and Berethite, Reshab and Banah, set out about the, about the heat of the day, and they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. So here's Ishbosheth. He's dismayed because Abner is dead. And he sits and he's resting at his house in the, midday, the noonday rest. And they came into the midst of his house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Reshab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him, they put him to death, they beheaded him, they took his head and went by the way of the Arab all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. 
And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and his offspring. And David said, well done, murderers. No, he doesn't say that. Look what David's response is. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Ramon and Berithite, their Berithite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward that I gave him for the news that he brought me. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? David's trying to set a new precedent. Stop bringing me the heads of people who you think are my enemies. I don't want to be seen as severe. That's not a good way to lead people. Scare tactics, don't, it's not good. It's fleeting. I'm anointed of God and I am not about this. And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them beside the pool of Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron to show as much respect as they possibly could. Man, drama. In these two events, David exercises a very sincere and a fair character. And the reason I walked y'all through all that text is the result that we see in chapter five. This is why we just engaged all of that. Look at verses one through five in chapter five. Then, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought, and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people in Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. The king and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. They were at Hebron because that's where God told him to go. And they anointed David king over all of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. This is massive. He just became the king of all of Israel. Why? What, how, how did he get there? David's character was noticed by the people. L look what it says. L don't miss what it said. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David, and, and they were noticing what David was doing. And there are other parts in this whole book where people would notice how he was moving, notice the character he was showing, noticing how he wasn't severe like other leaders of their past, noticing how he was consistent and being just and fair. And his character is noticed by the people, and though he was anointed by God seven years previous, now the people take notice of his leadership, and they express their desire to follow it. Under his leadership, Israel begins to dominate. All the people have taken notice. Notice how he didn't say, oh, I'm anointed of God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight my way into leading all of Israel. He shows so much patience in trusting God and trusting God's timing, and he serves Judah well. And that leads to all of Israel being served well by David. Under his leadership, Israel immediately goes on to take the stronghold of Jerusalem, which is Zion, and they call it the city of David. It becomes his headquarters. So when you sing of Zion and the city of David and Jerusalem, that's what you're singing about. David's the king of Israel because God is good and he has dominated. And they took the stronghold and they made it their own headquarters. And in verse 10, we see a very significant fact that cannot be overlooked. Look at verse 10 in chapter 5. Underline it if you have not already. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. David became greater and greater because the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. It needs to be made clear, none of us have any greatness apart from the presence of the Lord. Some of y'all need to hear that clearly. You have no greatness apart from the presence of the Lord. 
And that greatness will be shown in the way that we serve others. Remember, Jesus gave us a definition last, last week. If you desire to be great, you must be a servant. David's greatness came from the presence of the Lord, and David knew this. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. David knew this. We just saw that his greatness became greater and greater because of the presence of the Lord. And in 722, look at what David says. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation, and its gods. The presence of the Lord is a significant thing, and it's, it's no small matter. Yet, I'm fearful that this is one of those things that we all too easily lose sight of, the presence of the Lord. I want you to ask, like, just be honest with yourself. Be honest with the Lord. Does his presence in your life matter? Presence. I would ask, do you have a continual awareness of God's presence in your life? Continual awareness. Or when is the last time that you felt the effect of the presence of God in your life? When is the last time that God's presence mattered? For the next three chapters, we see a list of David's victories. He leads well. He blesses the people and in 8.13, it says, you don't have to turn there, just listen. In 8.13, it says, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all of his people. They go on to conquer the Philistines, the Moabites, the Zobahites, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Amalekites. These are real nations, real tribes, real people that they conquered because David was leading well, and the presence of God was with their leader, and the presence of God was with them. David and his leadership grow, and they show great trust in God. And because of that, they, they exercise great courage in battle. Look at 10.12. It says, <coughs> it's a small point, but it's worth considering. It says, be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people. And for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. That's courage. They trusted the Lord. They, they believed in the presence of the Lord. And because of that, in every battle, they showed great courage. And I want to make sure that we see the courage defined here is confidence that God will do what seems good to him. It's not confidence that God will do what seems good to me. That, that's uh, usually we'll define courage like that. I feel courageous, and I'm going to go about this endeavor because I believe God is going to do what seems good to me. But that's not courage, biblically. Courage, biblically, is believing that God will do what seems best to him, and because of that, we will give whatever we put our hand to everything that we have. Christians should pursue excellence in everything as reflections of the character of God. He was not half-hearted in anything. But as we do so, we do so knowing his will be done. I'm, I have courage because I believe that God will accomplish all his purposes. Consider the prayer of Christ. Lord, my prayer is that this cup would pass from my mouth. And then in the same breath, Jesus says, but not my will, Lord. Your will be done. And in courage, he went to the cross. As we read this awesome list of victories, I want us to jump over to the Psalms as we come to a close. Jump over to the Psalms in a minute. And what we're going to do in jumping over to the Psalms is our hope in doing that is to gain understanding in David's heart during the seasons of triumph. I think this is helpful because often during our seasons of triumph, we lose sight of God. When things are going well, when things are fine, when things are good, um, when they're going the way we want them to go, we can often lose sight of God. His presence is not so important to us. When things are going well, you won't find many of us on our faces before the Lord. And often, it's not until things go bad that we ever even turn back to him. If we're not careful, we could form a picture of David in our minds that's not quite right. I want y'all to see the success and the victory of David. I want y'all to see that he put his hand to things and he exercised dominion because of the goodness of God. But we gotta be careful that we don't get a picture of a man who just simply succeeds effortlessly. 
in everything he puts his hand to. Turn to Psalm 109. It was not effortless success on this man who was blessed by God. And I want to make sure that's clear because I don't want any of you to think, well, I'm a Christian, (coughs) a Christian, so my successes in life will be effortless because the King of Kings goes before me. He does go before you. But that doesn't mean no effort. It doesn't mean no fighting. It doesn't mean no, no hard work in the direction that the Lord is leading you. And this is what's helpful about the Psalms. Remember, we got to read the narrative. Man, victory, victory, victory. David wins, David wins, David wins. Israel wins, Israel dominates. But what happened during that time in Psalm 109? Look at verses one through four, or one through five. Be not silent. This is David. Be not silent, O God of my praise. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. Speaking against me with lying tongues, they encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. It wasn't all sweet flowery beds of successful ease for David. He says, people turn on me, people set traps for me. People want me dead. Nations rise up against me. Lord, I fear and I tremble. But you know what happens? I I go to you in prayer because I trust that your presence is important. Look at verse 21 in that same psalm. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me for I am poor and needy. My heart is stricken within me. I'm gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads at me. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. As he's preparing for these victories, we don't, there's, it's not a man who's assuming things will go perfectly. We see a man who's crying out to God, a man who's honest about his fear, a man who's eager for the Lord's will to be done, and a man who doesn't just want to win. He wants people to see his God's goodness. Turn to Psalm 140. Just to the right a little bit. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. These are the people who came in battle against him. These are the people who would set up their their battle um, forms and, and he would look out and see, oh, there's another nation that wants to fight me. There's another nation that wants to dethrone me. These are real people. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. I want you to see a man who is not just saying, well, they're evil, so they're going to lose. He goes to the Lord, and in sincerity, he says, Lord, protect me against this evil. I'm calling it what it is. Deliver me. Lord, these men are just stirring up war all the time. He's honest with the Lord. He doesn't make assumptions. He goes before the Lord humbly before battle. They make their tongues sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they spread a net. Beside the way they have set snares for me. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my God, the strength of my salvation. You've covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot or they'll be exalted. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire and miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent men speedily. 
I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. If you find yourself on the receiving end of affliction and injustice, rather than saying, this is not fair. God, where are you and what are you doing? Don't you see I'm your child and I'm getting afflicted? A better approach would be, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. I trust him and I'll exercise this trust through affliction. David's life was full, full of conflict, full of encounters that were life or death situations. It's good to see the heart of the worshiper. When reading the narrative, we simply see one victory after another, but we must remember that without battle, there's no victory. And in the midst of the battle and in the celebration of the victory, the heart of the worshiper is toward God. We never see David assuming victory just because he's the king. Oftentimes, we think that God will bless all of our endeavors simply because we're Christians. Yet those endeavors can often be godless. And when I say godless, I mean that we don't pray about details. We don't go to God for specific wisdom. We, we don't confess our fears to the Lord. But David goes to God, and he inquires. He seeks wisdom, and he pleads on behalf of himself and his people. And ultimately, the Godward leadership of David points us to the beauty of being under the kingship of Christ. The Godward leadership of David points us to the beauty of being under the kingship of Christ. Your king is Jesus Christ, to be clear. If you're a Christian, a follower of the Lord, your king is Jesus Christ. It is his kingdom that we're a part of, and we're called to be ambassadors. And the goodness that we see with David, I mean, we saw blessing, we saw victory, we saw spoil, we saw freedom for the people of Israel, we saw less oppression for Israel because the enemies weren't pressing upon them. There's lots of blessing but it's just a shadow of the substance of the blessing that we have in Jesus. For the supper, consider 2 Samuel 23. We're about to take the supper, and I want us to do so looking at 2 Samuel 23. And that's the last scripture you'll have to turn to this morning in our Bible drill sermon. 2 Samuel 23. These are the last words of David. I want you to picture an old man on his deathbed speaking to loved ones. I want you to hear sort of the, the raspy voice of a leader who has raised his voice in leadership many times as he led people. I want you to think what it would be like to hear King David, who's reigned 40 years share these final details. These are some of his last words about leadership. And he says this, 2 Samuel 23, verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. When we see imagery like that, we can give it a passing glance or we can stop and look at the painting. Two images that he gives us that I want us to have as we prepare to take the supper this morning. And I want us to consider it in light of Christ who is our king. First, the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Godward leadership of a people has the effect of the thrill and the freshness and the sense of awe and hope that exists uniquely when the dawn breaks. Has anyone seen just one of those sunrises that just blows your mind? Go back to that. If you've ever seen a sunrise where you just like, Wow, the most incredible sunrise I've ever seen. I was on a plane, 
And I was flying, and so I'm up in the air, and I see the, the dawn break, and I see the sun come up, and I just thought, my goodness. I was overwhelmed with the freshness of that sunlight, with the, the thrill, the exhilaration of, man, that just broke forth, and boom, light everywhere. It's, I can't even look directly at it, but I want to. That's what he's comparing good leadership to. That's what we have in Christ. We look at Christ, our leader, we should be filled with awe. It should be thrilling for us to see Jesus where he's leading in such a way you're like, I want to keep my eyes on him, but it's so bright I almost can't. We want to be overwhelmed with the goodness of Jesus because it is overwhelming. That's the kind of leadership that we have in our king, like a light that breaks forth in dawn, but not just any light. We're not done. We have this awe and this wonder of looking up and seeing such beauty and all of the clarity and the encouragement that goes with it. When that light breaks forth, you're able to see the details and connect the dots on all these other things that you couldn't see because you have a good leader. Then the metaphor causes us to turn our eyes to the earth to see the effect of such light. I want you to know, as y'all are created to be drawn to light, that's one of the things, God created us in that manner. And this metaphor causes us to look and be in awe and wonder of the splendor of the light and then look at its effect. Come back down to earth with me. But don't lose your awe as you do so. The brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Just, just go there for a second. You walk out, imagine no distractions, and you just see the light beaming down from heaven. You're like, my goodness, that is amazing. And then slowly you come down, and you see, look at this little piece of grass. Look at how that, the dew, look at the brilliant light reflecting off this little piece of grass, and look at all the grass. Look at how it's affected. Look at how it brings forth nourishment and life and goodness from the earth. Look at the effect of that. There's an effect at just looking at it, and then there's an effect at looking at what it does. That's the kind of leadership that we have with our King Jesus Christ. We're encouraged. We can go from being in wonder and awe of him, and then we come down and we look at, look at what he's doing in your life. Look at what he did over here. Look at the growth he brought over here. I didn't expect any growth over there. And look at what God did. It should leave us in awe and wonder. That's the metaphor that wise King David is leaving us with at the end of his life, and it shows us the kind of leadership that we have in Jesus Christ. One commentator concludes, so a good ruler produces good in others. He's beneficent, he's fruitful, he's helpful, he's kind, he's not severe. Christ leads us so wonderfully as our king, and in calling us to follow him, we have the opportunity to bless others in a like manner. As you hear about all this leadership, if you're still sitting there saying, I'm not a leader, I don't think this affects me, stop it, quit. Because he says, take up your cross and follow me. If you can see what I'm doing, do that. Do you hear what I'm saying? Say that. By design, as Christians, you are to have an impact on other people. And the, the, thing, the thing that is amazing is that that sun breaks forth, and we're in awe and wonder, and it's bright, and we connect dots, and then we see the grass, and we see this growth in areas we didn't expect. We see change that we couldn't. You can plant a garden. You can't make it grow. You can water it, but only God provides growth. We see these things, and what is amazing is that David is saying, and I know that if I can model my God, I'll be a blessing to other people. In my parenting, in my marriage, at work, if I'm truly taking up my cross and following my king, that's the effect it can have on other people. Quit waking up on Monday and expecting the worst. Quit going to work and just thinking nothing big could happen today. I don't want to be sensational about this, but my goodness, King Jesus has blessed us immensely, and it can have an effect on everyone we come in contact with, and it's supposed to. Mark Dever has a quote that I wanted to close with this morning. A heart that is satisfied in God is a heart that is full. Nothing else in this world satisfies it 
And it demands nothing else. It gives itself freely. Such a heart is dangerous to the evil one and all of his hellish ways. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and we are thankful uh, for your goodness. Lord, I'm aware that the sermon's been a bit of a marathon because there's so many years covered and so many chapters covered. But Lord, my prayer is that here at the finish line of this, this, this text, um, this morning's text, I pray that as worshipers, we are looking upon the goodness of our Lord and marveling. I pray that our hearts are full. I pray that we're satisfied. I pray that we can look at the life of King David and we can see all of your goodness and we can go straight to Christ and say, my, we are blessed in anticipation of your return. And I pray that we would be mindful that we are members of a kingdom that is eternal. We come before you humbly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.